Welcome to Tampering with Sam Amick and Joe Varden. We're joined now by Jovan Buha, the Clipper beat writer for The Athletic, uh, and he is here today to talk about his story. Uh, it's a late July story. It's called, We Have a Deal Ready, Are You In? Inside the Clippers' Pursuit of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. To be clear, uh, this is a co-byline story with Jovan and uh, my vacationing partner, Sam Amick. Um, and there's also a number of hat tips throughout the story to uh, Sham Sharanya, uh, our NBA insider. So it's a collaborative effort, but I can tell from the writing that uh, Jovan drove this bus. And, uh, and it's an excellent story. It uh, sent some shockwaves through the NBA. On let's see, let me get my dates correct here. Yes, it uh, posted on July 23rd, and in it, it is the uh, it details the mega, you know, signing and trading of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George that rocked the NBA to its core. Uh, in this story, they report that. Uh, Kawhi basically didn't go to the Lakers because of uh, Magic Johnson, uh, you know, blabbing that uh, about uh, Uncle Dennis talking to him. There was a sense in Clipperland that Kawhi may still return to the Raptors. And basically, it details a very tense franchise changing five minutes on the night that all this went down when they uh, had agreed in principle to the trade for Paul George. And uh, Lawrence Frank calls Sam Presti and says, we have a deal in place so long as Kawhi Leonard agrees to sign with us. So then they had to call Kawhi and tell them what they had and ask him if he was coming. <laughs> and they had to wait five minutes. And those were actually the first two words of the story, five minutes. Uh, we then ran through everything that I just said here, and Jovan writes, The Clippers at the goal line told Thunder General Manager Sam Presti that they were in, so long as Leonard was in too. Hold on, please. We have a deal ready with Thunder with the Thunder for Paul George, Lawrence Frank says to Kawhi and, and to Dennis Robertson, Uncle Dennis, if you will. We can pull the trigger right now. Are you in? He was in. Ladies and gentlemen, here to talk about this is Jovan Buha. Jovan, what's up, man? I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on this story. It's wonderful. Um, as I said, it, it uh, certainly made splash splashes around the league, and um, I know it feels good to do that, uh, to, to be a, a, a reporter kind of breaking in that way uh, onto the national scene. And, you know, we've talked to you before um, – on the tampering pod, what all this means as far as uh, is, is Kawhi and, and Paul George and all that. But but what did you learn in reporting this story um, about the Clippers and about the process of getting these two guys here that you didn't know in the immediate aftermath of, of that night? Well, what I, what I learned was that I, I think a lot of the stuff – had been staring us in the face for a while in terms of, you know, the Clippers had been the proverbial favorite for Kawhi for a lot of the season. You know, you talk to people around the league and everyone was like, barring a championship, he's probably going to the Clippers. And I think the, the biggest reason why was because they really established a, a kind of blue collar hard hat culture 
over the last two years with their new front office and with kind of a, a new organizational ethos that I do think really appealed to Kawhi Leonard. And one thing I thought in the story that really spoke to that was the code of silence and how, um, you know, th- there was no explicit, you know, there's a code of silence. If you say anything, you're done. But there was a, hey, this is how we operate. You know, we we do things privately. We, we do things behind the scenes. And we hope that, you know, any conversations we have, any questions we ask you, anything we talk about at all, will be, you know, uh, sort of approached that, that in that same manner uh, in terms of just, you know, privacy and, and kind of respecting, the, you know, the, the way Kawhi operates. So, um, you know, I think that was something that really helped the Clippers in this process was, uh, you, you know, in conversions to Magic, who, you know, not only went to the media uh, about what he spoke uh, you know, with Uncle Dennis about, but he went before Friedens even started. You know, the, the first uh, tweet from from Brad Turner of the LA Times was, uh, you know, an hour before the the free agent period even started. So, you know, Magic couldn't even keep his mouth shut into free agency. And while I don't think that explicitly eliminated, uh, you know, the the Lakers from contention, you know, one person involved in the process did say that, but. Um, I think it was more the super team aspect uh, with regards to the Lakers, but I think that really spoke to to kind of the Clippers' strengths. Where you know, I know for myself, I, I tried sending texts to multiple people. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that on the Tampering Pod, like could not get a hold of anybody. Uh, I, I know you know multiple people that you know Sam couldn't get a hold of people. Uh, other people in the media couldn't get a hold of anyone in the front office, and they just went completely off the grid. And uh, you know, I think that was kind of interesting where. It, it was kind of a rumor like, you know, Pete, Kawhi wanted people to keep quiet. Kawhi didn't want anything leaking. And that was really a thing. And, and that, I think, ultimately hurt the Lakers and, and really helped the Clippers where even the Raptors, I don't really think they leaked anything to the media. But uh, there, there was some reporting of, you know, he's on their he's on their private jet. You know, Drake's in the meeting. Uh, you know, they're meeting at this place for, for this amount of time. There was no reporting on, on any of the Clippers details. The, the the fact that he had a three hour meeting at Doc Rivers house in Malibu didn't come out until after he had already signed with the Clippers. So I, I think the Clippers kind of just sensibilities as an organization really appeal to Kawhi. And they were in the driver's seat, I, I really believe, from from everything I've learned from the beginning. You know, and it, it kind of does seem like Kawhi was stalling. Uh, w- with the Lakers and with the Raptors to buy the Clippers extra time to get a star, and then once the Paul George thing came on the table, that was their focus, and, and you know that was the the forty eight hour plus negotiation with the Thunder. So uh, it really does seem like from the beginning, uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard had his intent on, on going to the Clippers. It was just a matter if they could get that second guy. So the trade negotiations, and, and you kind of lay this out. The trade negotiations themselves between the Clippers and the Thunder were, I would, I guess, I would say, fairly methodical and, and happened within a fairly short amount of time. We do know that there was a ton of hand wringing on the part of the Clippers as far as how much they were actually going to have to give up for this, and yeah. they, I think they gave up five picks plus two pick swaps, and which was really hard for them. But so they they put this deal together, and then they you know they're on the phone with Sam Presti, and they say, "All right, here's the deal. Yes, yes, yes. Now we'll do it so long as Kawhi is coming." Um, and so then they hang up there. They call Uncle Dennis. Are you in? And that is where the five minutes took place. Am I right? 
Yeah. Okay. This was a tense as hell five minutes. Tell me about those five minutes in your conversations with these – with the sources you talked to to put this story together. Tell me about how they were freaking out. Well, I think there there's an element of, of free agency where you just saw this with Marcus Morris where you never really know until you know. And you know, the, the, with, with the DeAndre Jordan situation, with, with the Marcus Morris situation, with – you know, there, there's been plenty of reporting of a guy's close to signing here and then he ends up here. Uh, you just don't really know. And I think for them, they actually feared the Raptors more than the Lakers. Uh, I, I think they kind of – I don't know at what point in the process kind of deemed the Lakers not as much of a threat. But I do think that at some point they kind of realized this is probably a two-team race with us and the Raptors. And I, it does kind of sound like uh, Kawhi almost used the Raptors as – his leverage of if you don't get me the second guy, I'm going to go back to Toronto, maybe on a one plus one, two plus one short deal, opt out 2020 or 2021. And, you know, at that point, maybe he goes to the Clippers if they, if they get a second guy. But, uh, you know, I think for them, it was just, they'd been communicating with him. And that was another thing I found interesting was, uh, you know, they were very clear that Kawhi was actually leading this process. And, you know, there's kind of been this perception out there that, you know, Uncle Dennis runs everything with him. And, um, you know, some people have, have questioned his agency with, with some of the decisions he's made. But the Clippers were very upfront that, you know, no, Kawhi, Kawhi was the point man and everything. He, he was leading the conversations. He was leading the communication. Like we were talking to him two, three times a day. It was a very open dialogue, asking us questions. We were asking him questions, and it was just a very enjoyable process of of getting to know him and, and sort of getting inside his brain. Uh, but with that said, you know there was, still was the Raptors threat looming, and the Clippers were fearful that over that two day you know negotiation period with the Thunder, they were scared that he was going to back out and, and that he was going to just end up getting cold feet, changing uh, his mind, and, and going back to Toronto. So really, for them. You know, they were confident at that point that, hey, if we get Paul, we're, we're probably getting Kawhi. Like, that's how this is sounding. But until they spoke with him and, and got that confirmation, they were afraid, you know, there's still a chance he could go back to, to Toronto. So I, I think for them, it was just finally getting to, you know, th that package with the Thunder, which they agree. You know, they, they basically gave up the moon to, to get Paul George and Kawhi, but it, it really was contingent on on getting Kawhi and and. You know, once they spoke to him and spoke to Dennis and, and got that confirmation, then there was a sigh of the relief and you know, uh, sort of the the ecstatic the you know ness that came from that. But um, you know, for them, it really was they were afraid of the Raptors and, and they felt that him going back to Toronto was a bad sign uh, for the meeting. That they felt that Danny Green remaining a free agent was a bad sign because they thought there was a chance those two would team up and go back to Toronto. Uh, so they were scared really until they got that final yes from him. Uh, you know, late Friday night. Right. All right. So in our previous conversations, especially after the, clip, after the Clippers uh, did what they did, we, we have well established that you've got a very bright career in front of you. Uh, and so, you know, listeners can kind of can just kind of start from there. Um, but but let me ask you, how how old are you now? 26. Okay, so you're 26, and you were an editor, I think, at ESPN before coming to The Athletic. So I, I really think you've been a reporter for, what, a year, maybe two? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, technically, yeah, absolutely. So in in this in sports writing, especially um, in the NBA, where people just go insane over transactions like this um, in 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 the highest level of government reporting, when we talk about budget deals and tax deals and, you know, how laws get passed or how decisions to go to war take place, what goes on in the situation room, there are stories after the fact called TikToks. And basically what it is, it's a, it's a recounting of what happens in the very crucial minutes, hours, and days before a decision is made. You, my friend, have just completed your first TikTok. Uh, and again, it was great. It was fantastic. That's why we're talking about it today. Um, but I want you to tell us what reporting this story was like for you because A, you've never done it before. B, you had to work with uh, two national reporters, both very good and both have been doing this for a long time, but you were taking their information, putting it all together. And then three, just what it was like for you to learn this information, this very sensitive and fantastic information, what it was like for you to learn it and to gather it and how you sort of digested it into a way that you could then explain to readers what happened. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack with, with all of this. Um, I would say that you know this clearly was the, the biggest story I've worked on. Uh, I, I think the – the metrics w- would suggest that if you looked at you know my other stories r- versus this one, um, and you know, and I felt that there was a level of pressure, and you know, it, the, the way this kind of all came about was um, that this, this code of silence was real, where you know the Clippers, even t- up until recently, uh, you know, were not really speaking with the media, and I, I had made some plans to to speak with some people and kind of just update things on you know what's going on with. Uh, you know, how, how the last few weeks been going, what, what's the offseason been like, um, and just sort of update, you know, normal conversations with people. And that, that was kind of where that first seed happened, where I was like, uh, you know, I was Sam and I talk pretty regularly because he's pretty close with, with the Clippers, too. And, you know, we had just kind of caught up of, hey, I'm talking to some people, you're talking to some people, uh, you know, let's see what we can find out. And maybe we could collaborate on a sort of, you know, a behind the scenes story with whatever we're able to gather. And I think for both of us, we were able to gather a lot more than we had anticipated. Like I was just really interested in like, you know, what was the pitch meeting? Like what, what were some of the things that were said, who was involved? Uh, and, and really I was almost, you know, initially thinking a 800 to, to a thousand word, you know, short story on just sort of any details we could gather uh, about this situation. But um, from the conversations we had, we were able to gather a lot. Um, you know, our, our note pages were like over, uh, I don't know, seven, 8,000 words. Uh, and, you know, just sort of combining that, uh, you know, and what, what didn't help matters was that, uh, you know, Sam's in London right now. So, um, you know, he wrote uh, kind of the process was like, you know, he wrote a skeleton version kind of outline of, of things and his sort of perspective on stuff. Uh, then I kind of broke that down into sections and then added um, you know, stuff from my notes and, and, uh, sort of kind of started to put the narrative together, uh, context, some, some quotes. And, uh, then, uh, you know, after we had done that for a couple of days and, and really built out the story, uh, you know, spoke with Shams to, to see what, 
you know, what he kind of knew about it and if he had any input and um, then kind of went back and forth with him for a couple of days on, on what, you know, his conversations were like and, and what information he had. Uh, so really it was, it was kind of this weird dual role of being a writer and reporter and editor at the same time where I was inputting their work and their words and, and trying to, trying to keep their voice as much as possible, but also kind of keep the voice of the piece consistent uh, since we're, you know, three different writers, three different writing styles and, and voices. Uh, so I, I definitely wore a lot of hats in, in this process, uh, but it, it was really fun. It, it was very stressful. I mean, I was working like, I would say almost 10 hours a day for like five straight days on this, um, j- just kind of going through every single you know piece of information in our notes making sure we, we cleaned out the notebook as much as possible. Uh, and then also being very careful with the language because uh, a lot of this stuff was very delicate, uh, definitely the most delicate information I've dealt with. And just kind of you know making sure every word choice for, for every verb and uh, just anything we were sourcing or, or reporting out uh, was accurate and, and you know was confirmed. So uh, it, it was a very arduous process. It was definitely the, the probably the, the most amount of hours I've put into, uh, you know, any of my stories or at least, you know, uh, outside of a feature story. Uh, and you know, it was, but it was fun and, and it's been nice to see the reception the last 24 hours and then, um, you know, the shout outs from various people and, you know, I was on the jump yesterday. So, uh, not, not me, but the, the story. So it, it's been cool. You know, I mean, so I, I'm like, <clears throat> Uh, you know, I'm one of the last Gen Xers that there are. Like my <laughs> being like my birthday in, of September of '80, I'm like at the very cutoff of that. I'm also like kind of one of the like kind of that final generation of like the old like hard scrabble newspaper guy um, mm-hmm. who had to do this kind of stuff all the time. And so it makes me proud personally to hear a young guy like you go through this for the first time and do so well on it <laughs> the first time. I mean, this is just fantastic work. Um, when you do stories like this, there is an aha moment. There is a moment where you get information that you are so fucking pumped about that you almost can't take it. Um, and like, I, I've got a million stories about those moments for me throughout my career. Um, but this is about you. So, so I just want to know which moment was that for you? Which piece of information when you got it was like, Oh shit, I cannot wait to put this out. I, I think the, the magic stuff, <laughs> cause yeah. I, I had a feeling that, um, that was going to be, uh, you, you know, they, they ask us and I'm sure you've had the same thing of, um, I guess anytime they're working on a, a big story, they're kind of like, what are some of the things you, you think? that are going to be aggregated so we can kind of uh, get ahead of it with, with quote cards or, or with, you know, the way we frame our, our tweets promoting it. And I, I just knew the magic stuff was going to get, um, you know, was going to get aggregated. And, and that's been the thing, you know, that was what was discussed on the jump was did magic opening his mouth cost the the Lakers. And uh, it was aggregated on, you know, Deadspin picked it up, uh, it, you know, all, all, all the blogosphere and everything. So, um, that was one of those things where I was like, you know, th- this is because to me, I, I was fascinated by the code of silence because I was like, you know, is this because the Clippers have kind of operated that way. They, they blindsided the league with the Blake Griffin trade, with, with the Tobias Harris trade. Really, all of their moves, there have been no leakage, no prior r- reporting or rumors uh, outside of this, Kawhi, you know, year long Kawhi saga. Uh, 
so for me, I was like, is this just the, the way the Clippers are operating in free agency or, or is this a real thing? And it ended up being a real thing. So I think kind of the, the dual aspect of, yes, there was a code of silence and the Clippers abided by that. And then on the flip side, yes, Magic completely violated uh, that code of silence and Kawhi's camp was not happy about that. Uh, I think those two things in particular were uh, something that got me really excited. He ends this, this piece this way. He says the Clippers sought to eliminate the uncertainty around Leonard's decision. They wanted to go above and beyond to earn his trust, showing that when they say they will do something for him, like, say, construct a championship roster, they mean it. You want Paul George? We'll move the moon to get him for you. We'll re-sign Patrick Beverly, Jermichael Green, Ivaka Zubak, Rodney Magruder, and trade for Mo Harkless, designing what many across the NBA believe is the league's best roster. Trust us, the Clippers told Leonard, not with their words, but their actions. And at the end of the most important five minutes in franchise history, he did. Jovan, again, congratulations. Job well done. Thank you for your time, and thank you for writing the story. Of course. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. We're joined now by a a good friend of mine, Jay King, the Athletic Boston Celtics beat writer. And he's here today to talk about his story from November 2nd of 2018, headlined, He'll Fight to the End. Fueled by pain from his past, Marcus Smart has become the heart of the Celtics. Now, Jay brings this story to us uh, through, through boxing. And I have a thing about sports writing, especially basketball writing and boxing. If you compare any game or any playoff game to a boxing match, you failed. Just terrible, lazy ass writing. Uh, boxing is boxing. It's not the same as basketball. So we can all move on. But this, the way Jay does this is actually beautiful. Um, I, I loved it. I loved the lead uh, because he's, first of all, he's relying on something that I think he witnessed um, almost three years, well, more than three years ago now. Uh, long before he worked for The Athletic, a, um, a conversation involving Evan Turner and some other Celtics, and they're all kind of hanging out talking about who on the team at the time would be the best boxer. And, of course, after some deliberation, they settle on Marcus Smart just because he's so fucking tough. And I mean that in the most, um, you know, in, in, in the, the, truest, the truest sense of the word. And that's what Jay's story is about. It really just kind of brings to light the pain that that Marcus lives with and plays with and kind of how he uses it to to fuel him. Um, And here is my favorite paragraph from the story before we bring Jay on to discuss this. But to fully understand his gift and to realize how he became so vital to this team, one must trace his life, meaning Marcus, Back to the heartache and pain he never wants to let go. Smart plays to honor those he has lost, and if sometimes his passion takes him too far, that's a downsign intertwined with his greatest conquests. For him, it's all connected, the good and the bad, the tragedy and the inspiration, the long list of grimy winning plays and the occasional outbursts he would wish to take back. It's great stuff, Jay. Welcome aboard. How you doing? Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Jay, 
this was sort of the story that you highlighted that, that you wouldn't mind discussing. And so what was it that, that stood out to you? Why is this one that, that you've kind of carried with you now uh, a year later? So I think it's just really cool how open Marcus Smart is about everything that he's been through. And his brother passed away after a long bout with leukemia. His mother passed away recently due to cancer. And those are things he, he keeps with him. Um, and so I, I thought it was really cool just, just how willing he was to share that story. And then the Evan Turner part, it's funny you brought that up. I actually started a story about Evan Turner, as a, his career as an amateur boxer a couple of years ago. And I never finished it because there were moving pieces and then I moved jobs. Um, but so <laughs> Evan Turner is actually an amateur boxer. And so he did a lot of sparring back in the day. There's, he trains with a trainer who also works with Andre Iguodala and the, the money line of the story, which I try to talk to Iguodala about, he wouldn't confirm, but he kind of gave me this like sneaky smirk that kind of confirmed it. But the money line of the story was from the trainer. He said that, um, who was it? I forget which player it was old Philadelphia 76ers player, Craig Brackens. Craig Brackens challenged Iguodala to a boxing fight. And Craig Brackens was in the boxing gym like every day preparing for this fight. And the trainer said Iguodala flew in and just whipped Craig Brackens' ass and then flew out. <laughs> so I had actually I'd, – I'd been meaning to write that story years ago and then figured it fit in perfectly with the Marcus Smart stuff. Um, so – yeah, the Iguodala part was great, though. So th there's, but there's a couple of things that come to mind for me in reading this, and one is a general idea about sports writing, and and in a way, it's kind of what the athletic is is founded upon, which is that anybody now and for a long time really can find a score. Um, there, you've never had more ways to watch a game, so on any given night, you know what happened. Um, the thing that until until there's no such thing as a credential and anybody can go anywhere, the the thing that will never um, be in enough supply is sort of the access to the athlete, sort of the who is this guy. And so I feel like the more times we can tell that story about these team, about the fans' favorite players and their least favorite players and the guys in between, I think the better off we are. And so this is a prime example of that, giving a, a life story about a player. The second thing is I love the players who are a little bit I don't know, is crazy the right way to say it? I'm not sure. <clears throat> Just the guy who is wired a certain way and and you want to know why. But then to get serious here for a minute, um early on in the story he deals with and you deal with that he was he grew up depressed uh, from the death of his brother. I mean, his brother died when he was nine. When when excuse me, when when Marcus was nine, his brother was much older than him, um, and he lost him when he was nine. And so he he grew up depressed, and and he talks in the story about how he you know that's not something you really deal with as a child, especially where he lived and grew up, and at that age and in that time. In our history, that's just not something you do. Well, obviously today it is. And so there was so much to your piece, Jay, that I almost wonder if 
if we could re if the athletic could remarket this, I, I wonder if that would be what you lead with because this is a very important uh, part of the story that, that you've got this basketball player, another one, openly talking about and embracing how he dealt with and continues to cope with depression. A lot of people have kind of told his story and especially the the kind of spiral of depression he dealt with after his brother passed away when he was, I believe, nine years old. And he ended up getting a ton of fights. He beat the hell out of kids. He almost died one time when he messed with the wrong guy. I think he threw a rock at a gang member and got shot at. And so people have told that story before. The premise of my story was to kind of talk to him about how he's used all that to become the player he is today. Because like I said, it's all intertwined. And and he really does say and and stress that all the pain that he's been through kind of leads him to become one of the toughest players in the NBA today. And so when I was, we had to do a heartbeat story. Every, I think every writer for the NBA athletic had to do a heartbeat story. And I was, I asked players, I asked coaches, I asked who's the heartbeat and almost every single one said Marcus smart. And so I, I knew I had to do it about Marcus smart. And so I started talking to a lot of people around him about his life, his thing, the things he'd, he'd been through. And in the end, the, the most important thing, though, was was just his voice. And he ended up sitting after a shoot around in Detroit. He ended up just totally <laughs> ignoring the team bus, told the equipment manager guy that, that he wasn't going to go home with the with the Celtics team bus and just sat there for like an hour with me and just talked about all of it and how it feels him today, his mother, his brother, just kind of everything. And that like very very rarely does a guy just sit with you after shoot around i thought he was just gonna give me five or ten minutes and he he ended up just wanting to talk about all of it and so that that really made the piece is that he was so open about it and wanted to talk about things from the depression that he dealt with as a youngster to how he used it to fuel him today to i think like he was really really mature about his mother's passing this year um and just the way he handled that and the way he kept playing and and played really by far the best season of his career was was really impressive to me yeah so so marcus is like he's pretty open with any media member who will talk to him about stuff um but i think with with me especially like after his his mother got sick last year um he wasn't playing at the time i think his his thumb was hurt so it was the playoffs and he he was still out and one one night before shoot around or before a game he was just sitting in the locker room and so i just started asking about his mother and we talked about his mother for probably like 30 minutes and just about how how crucial she was to him kind of keeping him on track keeping him alive when he was a young kid and dealing with a lot of stuff how she always believed in him um and so we sort of bonded over that i guess so that that probably helped him become more comfortable although i I think he's pretty comfortable with almost anyone. Well. He's he's really very open about this stuff. Like I, I don't think it was just me. Um, but then I told him the story I was working on. I said, Marcus, I think we were in Oklahoma City, and it was before a game, and I was trying to get some time with him. And I said, Marcus, I'm writing a story about how you're the heartbeat of the team. I just want to kind of talk to you about all the things that that have made you the tough player 
that you've become. And he said, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, let's, let's talk in Detroit. So we were at a shoot around before the Pistons game. And it was pretty funny actually, because they were doing shooting contests and shoot around. You normally get like 15, 20 minutes of access as a reporter. And you got to do all your work in that time. And, you know, 15 minutes run off the clock and Marcus is still in a shooting drill. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> this story isn't going to work out. Well, I got a deadline in a few days. This is really bad for me. And he finished up, came over and sat down with me. And it was funny because the uh, security guy, Phil Lynch, was standing near us and clearly beckoning to beckoning Marcus to go to the team bus. And I had no clue what was going on. And apparently, Phil, someone shot, shot a picture of it. It's me talking to Marcus, and Phil is, like, staring daggers at me. And I have no clue he's there. Um, but Marcus is just kind of ignoring him. I don't even know he's there. And we just keep talking. And finally, Phil chimes in, like, Marcus, you got to go, man. Time for the team bus. And Marcus said, oh, no, 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 I'm just going to stay here. I'll get back to the hotel myself. And so we just sat there. It was at the uh, Caesars Palace. I think that's the new name of the pistons arena and so we just sat there on the sideline talking for 45 minutes an hour maybe and he just there there's a real vulnerability to him that i think is his greatest strength and he just kind of just admits every weakness every strength every fear that he has and kind of uses that as a power and so i always enjoy talking to him about anything because of how open he is whether it's about the team about himself about the struggles he's gone with but yeah he sat there on, on the side and actually he got pretty mad at me as i recall during the span of the conversation because i suggested like that he should tone it down a little bit with some of his outbursts i think he had just charged after jr smith in a preseason game like a, a month before and <laughs> and he was he was kind of like but, but you know what that's what makes me and and my mom always told me to speak up for myself and all that that's the part of the conversation that really stood out to me the most and because here he is like he's a guy who he nearly got suspended a few times this season for charging after guys but it's part of that was especially this year i think was he was trying to stay true to his mother told him and always stick up for himself and and that's in a way, like that's really cool. Like, granted, like he shouldn't really be charging after dudes, including J.R. Smith. But the fact that his mother had passed away, I think he was trying to keep that lesson and maybe keep it even to an extent that she wouldn't have wanted him to. <laughs> but he was trying to keep that lesson and kind of stay true to all his mother's teachings. So I thought I, that part really stood out to me. I don't even know if I ended up highlighting it much in the piece. But but just talking about that, it really, really stood out. So now this is going to put you on the spot a little bit. Um, I don't know if you've thought about your story in this way. But let's spin it forward. So as I said, the story ran at the very beginning of the year. November 2nd was the published date. Is there something that happened during the year at any point after you hit publish on this story? That sort of confirms what you wrote. That sort of shows why it was so important to tell the story. You just don't see much from guys. When uh, Kevin O'Connor, the ringer writer, when his father got cancer, um, Marcus Smart somehow knew that Kevin's father was a big fan of his. And 
ended up reaching out and got the father a signed jersey and like went out of his way to kind of make this really nice gesture to the O'Connor family just because they had that shared bond of cancer. And he, I talked to Kevin about it and Kevin said, you know, he'd only interviewed Marcus two or three times. Maybe didn't realize that Marcus even like knew who he was. Um, and then out of the blue, the O'Connor family went to a game and Kevin's father had cancer. And at halftime, I think it was, you know, a, a Jersey showed up signed from Marcus smart and Marcus smart had delivered it. So that, that's a thing. Like not a lot of guys do that. And all season really like Marcus smart was, it was a combustible team. And Marcus smart was one of the few guys whose spirit, the team could never touch. Like guys were up and down. Like it was, it was really a strange, strange vibe on the team. Uh, but Marcus smart through it all remained self selfless and, and played his, played his heart out every time. So it, none of it changed what I thought about the piece at the time. Like none of, none of it from the rest of the year changed anything. So folks, this was Jay King and the title of the piece. Once again, uh, for those of you who are looking for it is he'll fight to the end fueled by pain from his past. Marcus smart has become the heart of the Celtics. And one more quote that I just think is the the best way to end. Um, this is from Jalen Brown in the piece, and he says, he, again meaning Marcus, just embodies the Boston narrative. He'll fight to the end. Ah, goddamn, that's a great, just great stuff. And um, just it really tied the piece together. And uh, Jay, uh, thank you for writing this, and, and thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. This was fun to discuss it. All right, boys.